KRCL, Salt Lake City. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives every weeknight at 6 p.m. on your community connection, 90.9 FM. I'm Nick Burns. Tonight on the show, we continue to explore the fate of the Great Salt Lake with the Great Salt Lake Collective. And it's so I'm so pleased that we can do this extensively on Radioactive because so many, so many news outlets just give you the 30 seconds and move on. But we're going to stick with this until there's water in the lake again. So you stick with us. That's a long commitment. I think it's a long commitment, but it's worth the effort. So joining us on the show tonight, we've got Salt Lake Tribune reporter Leah Larson. Her latest stories include just recently on the 23rd, where she reported on how the Great Salt Lake managers have raised the causeway berm to try to stave off fatal levels of lake salinity. This has been going back and forth between the north and the south parts for a water. We'll get the story there. And earlier, a couple weeks back on the 7th, Leah looked at a new threat to the Great Salt Lake, yet another threat. And this is U.S. Magnesium. They want to extend their canals because <clears throat> current water levels are dropping too low for their canals to reach the lake to be able to extract minerals. And if you've lived here as long as I have, you remember what used to be U.S. MagCorp was the most polluting entity in the country for a while. So we'll talk about all that. Plus on the show tonight, Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, they continue their campaign to save Labyrinth Canyon. Has to do with which side of the river we're talking about. We'll get into those details. We've also got to feature a lake effect with John Luft and the Great Salt Lake Ecosystem, who is the Great Salt Lake, rather, Ecosystem Program Manager. So, Radioactive's Laura Jones, hi. Hi, how you doing, Nick? I'm pretty good. It's really nice to be here. It's fun to talk about the lake. I know it's kind of depressing at times, but I'm really happy that it's getting the attention because... The lake can't speak for itself, so we will speak for yeah. us. So what do we got? I know we've got a great Salt Lake collective piece. What uh -huh. else we got for rallies and resources? Well, I wanted to highlight once again the Utah Humanities Book Festival going on at places across the state through the end of October. And there are a few I wanted to shout out here, folks. So let's take a look. Ooh. On the 29th, which is tomorrow, 7 p.m. at the Park City Library, it is Reading Dangerously, a community conversation on genderqueer and later gator. You know, there's lots of books that are being uh, pulled from shelves across the country, largely at school libraries. We did a, a banned books week thing last mm -hmm. week on the show and talked about this, too. So, you know, the book festival is trying to create a space where we can talk about these books. Uh, including Dr. Seuss, even. Dr. Seuss has mm -hmm. been up to be banned. The Harry Potter books have been banned. Of course, things like Catcher in the Rye, long been controversial for some parents. Mm -hmm. I do find it quite odd that, you know, parents always want to be insured of what their own kids read, but now these parents want to tell me what everyone else's kids can read, which is a yeah. little frightening. There was a letter to the editor along those lines. It's like, I'm the mom, I'm the dad, I'm the parent, I'm the guardian. Right, and you, you had thought the conservative folks were all about empowering parents. Yes. But not when it comes to transgender kids or what books they can mm -hmm. read. Um, yeah, there's a bit of a disconnect there. <clears throat> all right. Different so, show, I think. Yeah, and we're happy to do that too, <laughs> folks. Another event with the Utah Humanities Book Festival, and you can get this link at krcl.org. Go to Community Affairs, click on Rallies and Resources, and at the top of the listing is uh, festivals, and the first one is the Utah Humanities Book Festival going on through the end of October. So this is a teen poetry slam happening on Friday, 7 p.m. at West Jordan High School. So it's going to be a great night, three poems under three minutes each. And it's, uh, I, I'm gonna have to reach out and get them to come on the show afterwards. Three minute slam poems, we should yeah. get some on the show. We love having poetry and especially youth poets coming on. So we'll be reaching out, but you can check it out on Friday, September 30th, 7 p.m. at West Jordan High School. And then dovetailing with our theme of the lake tonight, it is the first of the Great Salt Lake Collaborative Conversations and tonight, as we speak, getting underway at the Marmalade Branch of the City Library is the history of Great Salt Lake. And Darren Perry, former chairman of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation, is going to be on the panel along with Darren Duke of Far Western Anthropological Research Group. 
and Gregory Smoke, director of the American West Center. We're hoping, crossing our fingers, they get a great recording so we can share it on this show. Excellent. At a later date, but I believe they're also um, uh, doing a hybrid, and you can see it on their Facebook page. So that is in Rallies and Resources at krcl.org. And now let's get to our special guests for the next bit from Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. Yeah, Dave Pacheco, welcome back to the show. It's good to be back, Nick. And you're with Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. We, of course, have talked previously about Labyrinth Canyon. Folks will remember helium and all the fracas over that, which the wells, if I understand correctly, came up dry anyway. Great idea. And they left a mess. But tonight we want to focus on something a little different. And also Lauren Woods. Hi. Welcome back. Hello. With Holiday River Expeditions. And I know it's not our focus on this hour, but you were featured on page one on the Trib recently about the bro on the river culture <clears throat> that you have to endure. So we've got Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance looking at policies. And then we have Lauren, you're down in the water, on the water. So... Dave, I guess I would throw to you first. Real briefly, we're talking about one side of the canyon got wilderness protection, which was something Congress had to do. And now the issue is on the other side of the river. And I think it'd be fair to say that Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance feels like there's sort of a pushback because you had won in court once before. <laughs> That's a pretty good summary. Uh, let me just try to explain what's happening here on the Grand County side of the Green River. Uh, the Emory County side, which is on the west side of the Green River, was designated as wilderness, or parts of Labyrinth Canyon were designated as wilderness back in 2019 under the Dingle Act or the Emory County Bill, which was a part of the bigger package. So that wilderness happened. The part of the river, this, the river corridor itself was designated at the same time as a scenic river under the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. And right now what's happening is across the state, the Bureau of Land Management is undertaking a redo, a relook at their travel management plans that they signed in 2008. Those travel plans that they did back under the George W. Bush administration were immediately appealed and litigated by SUA. And ultimately, over the course of a long period of time, in 2017, we got a final verdict on that, and we were right. And the agency, <laughs> after all— That's legal language there. We were right. Yeah, uh -huh. it is. Yeah, and, and we were granted a, a, a win in this case, and the, as a result— the agency has to go in and redo their plans so that they're not just throwing roads all over the map, which was largely what happened back then. This particular area is one of the more well-known areas. It's known as the Labyrinth Rims Gemini Bridges area. It's north and west of Moab. And there were 1,200 miles of routes put into this area that's about 300,000 square, uh, uh, 300,000 acres. acres. And so um, what we're doing now is the agency is going through and taking public comment on their proposed uh, plans, it's open for that. And we want people to get involved in the public comment period. Uh, the way to do that is to go to SUA.org. Uh, the first thing that will scroll across your page is a, is a, a banner that says, uh, Labyrinth Canyon needs your voice now. Uh, and start clicking through that data because there's a ton of great stuff in there. There's a story map that really shows you and visually some of the issues that are on the ground. Uh, and we've just got, you know, we put a ton of information in there, including maps that show you the different alternatives that the agency is considering. Uh, one of which, alternative B, is what we see as the best way to protect the place. Because this is an area where there are plenty of roads for off-road vehicles. Uh, Lauren, there is a way to get down to the river here, so we're not talking about eliminating all the motorized traffic. But again, among these four options, Sua, you prefer one that's a bit on a bit on the less <clears throat> automotive vehicular powered side. Yeah, just to give a little bit of idea in terms of numbers here. So there okay. were 1,200 miles of routes that were already put into the area. That's what's been at question here. In that current situation that they're reworking, 94% of the lands in this area are within a half a mile of one of these routes. Hmm. Okay. It's the density. It's about density. We just don't need to have a vehicle route going everywhere. There's plenty of access to many, many overlooks that are have been there for a long time. But what we're talking about are 
ratcheting that number down a bit to protect wildlife habitat, in particular down in the canyons where wildlife tend to congregate in a desert. Most, wild, most life forms are in the canyons. Those sorts of things where the, the vehicles go in and out of the, the, you know, to get down to the river. To get bottom. down to the river. Yeah, and, in, and those are the kind of things that we're questioning. In your experience, once there are roads designated, are most people pretty good about staying on them? Or does one road lead to many homemade roads? It's, hard it's a little say. bit of it's a little bit of both. Okay, um, you know, for the most part, people tend to follow the directions that they're given. Oh, good. Uh, so information and signage and education is important, uh, and so that's another aspect of this. It's not exactly what they're trying to tackle here, but we certainly are in favor yeah. of letting people know what it is and isn't around. No, I think that's good. So Lauren Woods, bring you back in here, Holiday River Expeditions. Tell me what it's like when you're down on the river, going through the canyon, and you're seeing these two sides. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, it's an interesting bifurcation, right? We have a river corridor, so it's a natural barrier. But at the same time, uh, you know, I was just down there with my my family and my mom heard these these OHV vehicles, you know, rumbling alongside of us as we're on this four day scenic, quiet, lazy river float. Um, And she said, I thought this was wild and scenic. Like, what's going on? This doesn't make sense. Because in her mind, you know, that means there isn't that motorized sound. The the soundscape is intact with a true wilderness experience, which is what I've spent my life doing on rivers. Um, My first ever trips down in Labyrinth before it was quite as well known Mm -hmm. uh, were that. It was just nothing but quiet for five days. If you were with the right group, you wouldn't even have to talk to each other. Um, You can return to a bit of your wilder self. (laughs) So what have you seen for changes? I mean, we've all read and heard about many more people getting outdoors, many more people escaping to the wilderness. A lot of these areas are getting a lot more traffic for better and for worse. Yeah. But in terms of your work, what have you seen change over the last few years? Yeah, I mean, you're right on the money. We have uh, the biggest increase in interest in river trips as a river company that I've ever witnessed in my lifetime or that of my grandfather or father and mothers. Um, This is a real moment for wilderness, um, I think largely spurred by COVID. Mm. The reality is we can choose to uh, be out there and recreate responsibly, educate people. For the large part, that's what I see people doing in Labyrinth Canyon. And the interesting question with this public comment period, I think, will be, you know, are there enough people out there seeing the value of true, quiet wilderness in this canyon to comment and to actively engage to protect the place? I think it's a really unique opportunity, as Dave's saying in that regard. Good point. And I presume, you know, you can't speak for Holiday River Expeditions or for the other businesses down in that neck of the woods, but I would think across the area, there should be a fair amount of concern about this. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, uh, regardless of how many commercial operators run through there, it is largely uh, private boaters and canoes, which is great. Um, we we value intact ecosystems and intact wilderness corridors. Like we run a 12-day trip that is a hiking oh, wow. expedition that starts in Labyrinth and runs all the way through to North Wash on Glen Canyon. Uh, or Glen Canyon National Rec, you know. So without that labyrinth piece, that whole trip falls apart. And for folks who are in and going through this canyon, is it mostly multiple days, multiple day trips? Sure. I'd say give yourself at least four days uh, if you want to see it in in its splendor. (sighs) Do some side canyon hikes. And Dave. So I want to make one important distinction for folks here. Okay. That only Congress can make wilderness that's why the bar is set high. That's why it's been going on for many, many years here in Utah. So what the agency, what the Bureau of Land Management can do on the Grand County side now, they can't make wilderness, but they can approximate it. They can manage the area for those values that Lauren just eloquently ex- explained here. You know, So uh, for the natural quiet, for solitude, for wildlife, for habitat, because when we go up and down the river corridor and quietly we're not disturbing those habitats when you have a motorized vehicle that's going on it's it startles wildlife everything's kind of disrupted and so it's it's that kind of experience that is frankly not found in that many places around even the world nowadays we have a real unique opportunity here in utah and it's this opportunity that we want the bureau of land management and moab to get right and are there other Areas up for redetermination and reevaluation when it comes to 
motorized use? This isn't the only one that's up for <clears throat> grabs, I want to say. That's correct. The travel management plans need to be rewritten for all 11 of the field offices in Utah. Uh, they're on their own timelines, so we're not really sure exactly mm -hmm. which one's coming up. This is the one that's currently open now. Though, right now. And the deadline for, to comment is October 7th, so it's important that folks get in, get their comments in. We've got a portal right to the BLM website uh, at SUA.org. You can look at the story map. You can look at kind of our rationale and use some of those. Then you can click the button and go right to BLM and comment. So SUA.org, and I presume <clears throat> you'd be more than willing to have folks read the website. They can get some background. They could find some hints for things to write about what's important to them in their own lives. Um, are you, Lauren, are you always, is this your route, or are you on other rivers down there too, other, other routes? Oh, sure. I mean, this is one of a number of really, really wonderful places across southern Utah, but it is one of those that... I mean, Dave's right, it's popular, but it's also easily forgotten when you're thinking of, you know, the Grand Canyon and these other more notable rivers. Um, I hope it isn't forgotten in this critical moment. Yeah. So for you, taking folks out, how does this, how does, say, four days through Labyrinth compare to four days on the Colorado or something else down in that part of the state? Sure. I mean, I, Labyrinth is a great trip for kids. It's oh. one of the only totally flat water sections of river you can run from put-in to put-in or to take out. Um, you know, if you continue down, you get to the class five whitewater, but pretty much anyone can figure out their way on flat water if they have the right paddle. <laughs> <laughs> and someone like you to help. Uh, hopefully. How, and how, the groups you take for, for four days or a week, how big do they tend to be? How many people at once? Do you, so, do you cap? Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing. There is use management in Labyrinth Canyon. You can bring up to 20 people in your party, including guides. So that'd be four. Or sorry, 25, including Inc guides. With the guides. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So four or five or six rafts mm -hmm. camping along the way. Are there designated campsites or you camp wherever you want? You're camping wherever you find a good sandbar and hopefully, you know, following all of the, the guidelines of leave no trace uh, while you're out there. Pack it in, pack it out. Mm -hmm. What do you end up packing out the most of? Uh, it's, I don't know what's the heaviest or largest, but, you know, lots of aluminum cans, lots of human, uh, <laughs> well, human two, waste, yeah. you know, well, I wasn't <laughs> going to go by weight. Yeah. I was just thinking by volume. So a lot of trash bags of tin cans. Sure. Uh, uh hopefully as many humans as you came into the canyon with. <laughs> <laughs> when you say leave no with. trace, you don't want to leave a couple of yeah, humans. Don't leave the human animals. Uh. And you said most people are pretty respectful, either on the river or up on the up on the banks in their all-terrain vehicles. Most people treat things pretty well. I think I think that's the hope, right? Like, I don't want to get in the way of an ATV user enjoying their wilderness experience. I just want to have enough space from them that we can be friendly neighbors. Well, that's well said. I know when I've been backcountry skiing, it's always disappointing when the snowmobilers come through, ying, 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 and it's like I would just like some quiet, please. But yeah. yeah. Well, in particular in this area, you know, the the canyon, is, you know, it's a 40-mile stretch of Labyrinth Canyon, followed by another 30 to 40-mile stretch in Stillwater Canyon. And only in this one area, which is just upstream from the takeout, uh, are the ATVs allowed to yeah. kind of go up the river. So you're kind of in the middle of this wilderness experience, and all of a sudden it changes. I mean, that's the kind of thing that we want the agency to consider, that, you know, there are only so many places like this. You can get a group of people to go down and not have to deal with that. There are many, many places in Utah. It's even encouraged by so many people to ride your ATV. And you can see, we're just by going out, you can see that they are multiplying and they're going everywhere. This is an attempt to you know, recognize the unique nature of some of these wild places and to treat them as such and to manage them as such going forward. And the minute, it's, it's minute or so. It's not an unreasonable request. Yeah, yeah and yeah. the minute or so remaining, you mentioned earlier there are different ideas, four different plans, basically. And the one that you all support is not the one that just says no motorized traffic whatsoever. So even what you're supporting could be argued a fairly decent compromise, I would think. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. there's the keep the status quo alternative, which was 94% you know, of the lands that you're on are within a half mile of a route. We're dialing that back a little bit in, in alternative B, the conservation approach. Alternative C is the agency's kind of middle of the ground sort of approach. To, it essentially would make the situation a little worse than it currently yeah. is because there are more ATVs. And alternative D is more or less motorized use uncontrolled. So hmm. those are the range of alternatives that they're using. And like I said, B as in bird, 
alternative B seems to have the better kind of of the four choices. It's the one that we prefer. If it's not B, would you be back in court or fair to ask at this point? Uh, that's that's not my call, Nick. Uh, I am not an just, attorney. I'm, a, I'm an organizer, so I, know, I, don't, I, just, I don't get to make that call. Um, well, but it's possible. Yeah. I just wondered. Yeah. So real quickly, a few that, seconds. That's not our goal. Our goal is to, to get finality, yes. Good point. Good f to be done, right? Yeah. So October 7th is the cutoff for comments. Website for your group again. Make this easy for folks. You can go to suwa.org, suwa.org. It's the first thing that scrolls across your page says, uh, Labyrinth Canyon needs a voice. Just click on it, and you're going to start to find lots of information. Pretty, 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 pretty pictures, too. If you want to see some nice pictures of the canyon, go to the SUA website. And, Lauren, I'll give you the last word about this particular part of Utah and what you do down there, what we want to leave people with. You know, just think about the last time you heard true quiet. And mine was only a few weeks ago because I'm lucky enough to be down there often. Um, think about it value that it's a it's a not often valued thing because it's easy enough to stay busy in this world lauren woods holiday river expeditions and dave pacheco southern utah wilderness alliance thank you to you both great interview nick and i was just reading on sua's website that labyrinth canyon travel management plan is just one of 11 yeah. new orv travel management plans the blm is required to complete by 2025 Ugh. that's a lot of work to do and i'm guessing we'll probably have sua back on the other 10 <laughs> But anyway. But this is one, and this is October 7th, for mm. people to submit public comments to the Bureau of Land Management about Labyrinth Gemini Bridges and this travel management plan environmental assessment. Again, this is right northwest of Moab. I think it's a part of the state we all care about. Yeah. So I hope folks can go check it out and make their comment. Pretty so easy. Be in the show notes tonight, folks. We got a song for you, but to get there, we got to go through Sam at the Rural Utah Project, another field organizer with a different nonprofit, the Rural Utah Project. Let's pass the microphone, find out more. Sure. My name is Sam Van Wetter. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I work as the Grand County Field Organizer for the Rural Utah Project. I live in Moab. So what do you do? Uh, I How do, do you split your time? I, I split my time many different ways. Yeah, I, I, I have got a lot of projects um, which which go from front burner to back burner. Uh, we're pursuing long goals with uh, short and immediate action. Um, I work on local politics, so we're supporting progressive candidates uh, for county offices down in Grand County. I also work on municipal elections in those off years. Um, our long goal is creating a political environment that's amenable to conservation and wilderness issues. So, so the theory is that in places like southern Utah, where so much of our land is managed federally, if we have local elected officials who, who want, to, um, want to recognize our public lands as the asset to our community and our economy that they are, uh, they can be our allies in having these federal conversations about how they're managed and uh, who makes those decisions. How's voter registration going down there and recruiting folks into the system who may be disaffected by it? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting conversation to have in these midterm election seasons. Uh, people who say, oh, I, I don't vote for anything. And I say, I understand that on a presidential level, you know, these these uh, big elections that doesn't really feel like they reflect us as individuals. Um, but when we're talking about local politics and county politics, they have much more of a direct impact on our day-to-day -day life, uh, and they're more accessible to us. So I'm registering voters with that message. I'm saying, you know, look at this list of candidates. Is there one person on here who you think deserves your vote? And if yes, then it's worth registering and it's worth submitting a ballot, even if you're just bubbling that one name. Um, we, I work a lot with uh, guides, with transient workers, with service workers who might be in Moab for just uh, just a year or so. They might be headed to some some beautiful mountain town in the winter. But I say before you do that, submit a ballot here in Grand County where, where your vote will make a real difference in uh, in, in the way that our town is managed, the way that our county is managed, and in the protections of our public lands, which is such a huge asset to live in there. As you're registering folks to vote, what are you finding among folks? I mean, that's your knocking on their door, their their home, their castle, and asking for them to share a bit of their politics. Yeah, that's right. And and I think uh, I think that can be a sticking point, right? Is if we're w walking up to their door and we're saying, "What do you think of politics?" That's that's such a broad, and that that can really make a um, that make someone turn against you really quickly. And so, if you walk up to them instead and say, "What's keeping you up at night?" 
what are you going to be worried about for this next year? Um, in, in working with these progressive candidates, uh, you know, it's uh, a lot of voters are asking them to talk about national issues uh, when in reality the things closest to home are what they're going to be working on. Um, so if you walk up and you say, how many kids are in your, how many kids are in your student's class? Uh, you know, are they, are they getting the education they deserve? Um, and, and when they get older, if the high school and beyond, are they going to be able to find a way to stay in rural Utah? Do they want to stay in Grand County? Are there going to be jobs and housing for them to raise families of their own? Um, so, so I think redirecting the conversations to, to that direction, to, to say, uh, how do you want your local government to service you and your family? And, and how can we create candidates who will respond to those issues? You live and work in southern Utah, in Grand County in particular. What is it about that area that you don't think us up here in the city necessarily knows or understands or appreciates? Well... We all know Delicate Arch. You know, we all know the Colorado River. There, we've got these big features that um, are landmarks and are beacons for for both folks up here in, in the Wasatch Front and and folks worldwide. Um, you know, they they come to see Monument Valley. They come to see uh, Arches National Park. All these all these beautiful places. Um, and and the fact is that we have a thriving community um, that lives amongst those places. So so our indigenous population who have been here for time immemorial, uh, all the way to to the person who showed up to raft guide for this summer and this summer only. Um, it's a it's a mosaic down there, uh, like like every uh, self sufficient and and resilient community. We've got people who are working really hard on issues that are most important to them. Fun fact that I learned before we opened the mics when you came in today is that you're on the board at our fellow at our fellow community radio station, KZMU in Moab. So time to play DJ and go out with a song. What would you like to send out to the world as a message or just a good time today? As we're leaving today, I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest that we listen to a song called Lucky Bounce. Uh, made by my friend who who performs under the name Yuccas. It's great, great Southern Utah music. It's uh, it's good for driving, good for floating, good for biking, good for uh, being in the desert. Thanks, Sam. Thanks. Good for floating. Weren't good we just for talking floating, about that? good for boating. Yeah, All I right. like that. More Great Salt Lake coming up. Here's Yuccas, Lucky Bounce on KRCL ninety point nine. Catholic Community Services provides quarterly opportunities to become a licensed refugee foster parent. Becoming licensed provides the opportunity to bring one of these resilient youth into your home and create lifelong bonds. To register for the October training, visit ccsutah.org. Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and the Subaru Love Promise, a partnership with local nonprofit organizations to support and strengthen our community. Now accepting applications for 2023 nonprofit partnerships. More information on Mark Miller Subaru's Love Promise and application process at markmillersubaru.com. My name is John Luft. I'm the Great Salt Lake Ecosystem Program Manager. The Ecosystem Program basically manages the brine shrimp fishery on Great Salt Lake, as well as oversees all of the waterfowl management areas that are around Great Salt Lake. <laughs> I always mention that we're basically sea monkey biologists. I don't get out as much as I used to, but uh, the rest of the crew spends their time trying to understand what the brine shrimp population is doing and how it relates to the birds. You have over half of the entire population of eared grebes here at Great Salt Lake. So they spend a good portion of the fall and part of the winter here feeding exclusively on brine shrimp. I can't remember a time in the last two decades where brine shrimp companies haven't harvested over 20 million pounds out on Great Salt Lake. So it's a pretty important economic boon for the, the state, and it actually contributes to the global market of brine shrimp. People always equate uh, Great Salt Lake to a, a big bathtub when, in fact, uh, a probably more apt 
description is it's like a giant dinner plate. It is really, really shallow. And so just navigation on Great Salt Lake is gonna be increasingly more difficult and risky. I've been stuck on the lake a jillion times. I've been lost out there at night, submarining the airboat at one time. One of the students that worked on the project, we were out, I wanna say it was like February, so nobody else would be out there. And the alternator fell off of the airboat. <laughs> I couldn't get cell reception. And I'm like, what are we gonna do? We had a bunch of duck decoys and I cut the decoy lines off and I tied this alternator on and he's like, that's not gonna work. Can't tie that on with a rope. And I was like, well, I don't know what else to do. And we're out in the middle of here. It would take us, I don't know how many hours to walk out of here. Anyway, I said, well, just, <laughs> just, well, let's see if we can give it a try. And so I started up the engine and I was like, let's just see how far we can get. We made it all the way back. And he's like, I can't believe that uh, you were able to limp this thing all the way back in. This is Lake Effect from the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. Stay salty, Utah. Stay salty, Utah. This is Radioactive on Your Community Connection, 90.9 FM. I am Nick Burns. Tonight, coming up on Your Community Connection, Democracy Now! of course rolls at 7 with Amy Goodman. Rude Awakening with Liz, that's 8 p.m. Maximum Distortion, Forgash and Cody D, 10.30. That show has been blasting ears for so long. It is so cool. And, of course, every weekday you can join John Florence, who starts a brand new day at 6 a.m., Lake Effect, gosh, that's part of the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, a solutions journalism initiative that partners with, I want to say, a dozen or more news, education, and media organizations, including the Salt Lake Tribune, including KRCL, to help inform people about the plight of the Great Salt Lake and what can be done to make a difference before it's too late. And I'm happy to be able to do this coverage before it's too late. And you can check out all those stories at Great Salt Lake News. Dot O-R-G. So now on the show, Leah Larson. Hi. Hi. From the Salt Lake Tribune. Hi. Nice to be here. And we don't need to get into that. I got to be careful to pronounce your name correctly because of your <laughs> parental history naming you after a Star Wars character. It's That's so beyond confusing. and aside where we are tonight. I want to talk mostly about these two recent stories that you had in the Tribune. And I think I'll start with the causeway because this actually was something that was reported back in the summer. But I guess to get into this, there is a causeway that splits the lake in half. Everybody knows the original story of the Transcontinental Railroad that ran around and, you know, Promontory Point and the Great Spike and all of that, and the Chinese folks were left out and on and on and on. But then about, what, 110, 115 years ago, the railroads built this causeway and they basically put a dam into the lake. Um, well, it started out as a wooden trestle railway. It wasn't a dam kind of originally. Not, it was a wooden trestle. Okay. Um, they added that in the early 1900s. Um, it was in place through the 50s, which is kind of amazing to think about that this wood was sitting uh. in the salty brine and they must have kept replacing those trestles quite often. But uh, they did in the 50s replace that with a rock-filled berm. And that is what gives the lake its kind of unique colors. If you are flying over in an airplane or looking at an aerial you can see the purpley pink water in the north, which is hypersaline, and then the blue-green water in the south, which is more productive for things like brine shrimp and birds. So in terms of the brine shrimp industry, that causeway, at least when they put in the rocks, basically killed that whole part of the lake, right? It, got, it became way too salty for the brine shrimp. Interestingly, I think, so when the lake was really high in the 80s, it actually helped them out a lot. So the, oh, the shrimp were doing much better up there. So it has like, yeah, kind of a mixed effect. But long story short, this causeway, once it went from wooden trestle to rock, it changed the salinity between north and south. It did. That went on for some decades. And then they then they busted holes through it so the water could mix to try and equalize the salinity, the north and south arms, I guess we could say sides of the lake. But now they've plugged it back up again. Yeah. So actually, <laughs> when the railroad did the rock-filled causeway, they 
uh, the state came to them and said, we want you to put in some openings, you know, so water can still pass through. So they did put those in. But over time, the kind of the muck in the lake bed is just so slowly sucked up the rock and it just sinks and sinks. And so they have to put more rock on top. So it just got to the point where uh, there were no more culverts or openings in the causeway. So in 2016, they breached it again because, uh, you know, they were worried, one, about water getting to the north arm because there's a Gunnison Island, which is an important nesting ground for pelicans. Um, so, you know, they want to keep that as an island. So you need water flowing up there because no rivers make it to the north end of the lake. Um, and also there was a concern with safety. So if an airplane was flying over the Great Salt Lake and crashed in the north arm, how are you going to get a rescue boat over there, right? So oh, they, wanted, they wanted an opening for that as well. Okay. And then, okay, so we, we went there for a while. Now the lake is down. We aren't in the 1980s anymore. Um, pretty easy to see the spiral jetty <laughs> these days. Um, but now they've changed this. They've kind of changed it again by plugging these back up a few months ago. Yes. So the the lake is getting so salty. Um, as you, you probably remember, in July, we had a, yet another record low. Um, so in July, uh, I think they were scrambling a little bit. They wanted to stop the salinity exchange between the north arm and the south arm. So as fresh water is moving from the south arm into the north arm, salty water is also migrating south. So they wanted to slow that process a little bit. So they went to this culvert that they just opened up in 2016, dumps the rocks in it, and that is apparently helping to slow the flow. And the idea would be that the south part then wouldn't get quite so salty. Right. And be better for the brine ship and so on. Um, so John Luft, of course, who we just heard on Lake Effect, um, he's mentioned in your story, actually. He is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I called him up just to see how things are going with the salinity. Um, brine shrimp harvest season is next month. So they're keeping an eye on that. Um, and the brine shrimp, they really like salinity that's between 12 and 16 percent. And for a lot of the summer, um, John Left could not get out to measure the salinity to see how it's uh, how high it is or how low it is and what the shrimp are doing. Um, but the brine shrimpers let them uh, launch from their marina, and mm. the salinity is currently at like just over 18%, which is kind of an unknown zone. We don't really know what is that going to do to the shrimp and what ripple effects will that have on industry and on birds that eat the shrimp. So, What can you tell me about the industry? It, to me, it seems rather... A secret what goes on out there with the brine shrimp and how they get them and what happens to them and where they go and <laughs> yeah I can tell you from a high level what they do so um the shrimp they give birth to live young throughout the summer but then as their food source runs out and the temperatures start to drop they lay cysts which are like eggs and those cysts are really hardy that you know they can survive this hyper saline environment these really cold conditions really extreme conditions so the shrimpers go out and harvest these cysts because because they're so hardy, they're easy to ship. So they'll package them, um, they'll ship them to Asia, and then in Asia they hatch the cysts and feed these little shrimp to seafood, like sh the shrimp that people eat. So if you are enjoying the, a shrimp cocktail, you might be eating a little bit of the proverbial great salt jumbo lake. shrimp yeah. <laughs> grew on Great Salt Lake. So are they shipped like in wet? They're like damp, right? So I. They have their special secretive process of how they package them, and I, I don't know. Because it's a trade secret? I mean, it, it sounds like everyone—I'm I'm someone who would like to know more about how they do it, and as a reporter, I would imagine you would like to know more how they do this business, but it Definitely. seems like it's a great unknown. Yeah, I mean, it's a multi-million dollar industry. I think they're pretty protective of their trade secrets, you know, probably not surprisingly. Yeah. But it's, I mean, there are only a very limited number of businesses that can do this. They somehow have, what, permits with the state to get out there and get the shrimp? Yeah, yep, they do. And uh, the state collects a portion of their um, profit, their revenue. Yeah. And that's what funds John Luff's program, actually. So, yeah. And in terms of the salinity now, it's going up a little bit. My understanding is it's not at present killing the shrimp, but it is sort of affecting their ability to make the cysts. And that could be bad. Yeah. So, like I said, we're in the salinity, like, unknown zone. We've never been here before. We're at a record low. The lake keeps going down. The salinity keeps going up. So we don't know what's going to happen. But uh, John Left told me when he was out there recently that the shrimp are kind of doing okay, but they're behaving kind of strangely. Um, throughout the summer, they've kind of acted like it was 
the end of the year. So like I said, they usually give birth to live young when things are great. And then when the food runs out and the temperatures get cold, they give birth or they don't give birth, they lay cysts. Yeah. And so they're, they're kind of been behaving that way. So that's good for the industry this year because they're laying a bunch of cysts, although we don't know like how viable are the cysts going to be. Mm. Um, but, you know, if the salinity keeps spiking, what is that going to do to the shrimp in the long term? And what is that going to mean for the industry? Because eventually things get salty enough that they look like the North Arm where there are no shrimp. Right. There are no cysts. Any shrimp that do make it to the North Arm certainly aren't laying cysts. They're just trying to survive. So, yeah. And in your reporting, are all the birds, the millions of birds that come through, they're pretty much all wanting to eat these little critters? Not all of them, Some, but great yeah, many of them. There's a few that specialize on brine shrimp. A lot of them specialize on brine flies, but the brine flies are also being impacted by the high salinity. Exactly. So, yeah, millions and millions of birds. <laughs> What's it like to do this reporting for you? Because it, it seems to me it could be kind of depressing. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's, it's when you go out in the field or fly over the lake and you see all this exposed lake bed, it is kind of, it's shocking, you know, it never stops being shocking. Um, especially when we know what has happened to other saline lakes around the world that have dried up. Um, but I am encouraged by the fact that so many people are paying attention now. Like, that's great. You know, we yeah. have this collaborative, um, all these newsrooms that were formerly competitors. I mean, we still are competitors, but we're coming together on this issue. And, um, I think that's great. The sharing is wonderful, right? Mm -hmm. You're all working together. This is Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. We're talking with Leah Larson from the Salt Lake Tribune about her reporting on the Great Salt Lake and about the trouble the lake is in, which will, of course, spill over to the brine shrimp, will spill over to the shrimp you might want to eat for dinner next year, and, of course, will potentially affect the millions of birds that travel through regularly. So there's another story that you did a couple of weeks ago, and I want to ask about that one as well. And that would be U.S. Magnesium. They're over on the far west side. Uh, many folks who listen to Radioactive will remember them as one of the most polluting businesses in the entire nation. I believe they were a super fun site for a while. Um, they are back now called U.S. Magnesium. And what they do is they kind of have canals that go down into the water and they get water and then they evaporate it and whatnot and get magnesium, get other rare metals, which, of course, we all want these days. So what's happening with them? Well, the lake is so low and the water is retreated so far that they want to dredge their canals, extend their canals to get more water. Uh, and one of them they want to extend by like three miles, which I have a hard time even wrapping my head around, like that amount of dredging and, you know, um, so that's how far the water is. What they're or what they want to extend their canals to is um, a point uh, where the lake would be at an elevation of 4,185 feet above sea level. And I just checked today, the lake's at 4,189.1 feet. So... You know, four feet, that's a four-foot difference, which doesn't sound like a lot. But if you think about the Great Salt Lake, it's like a really big puddle. So, you know, if the lake drops a foot, that expose a, exposes a whole bunch more lake bed. So um, hopefully we never get to 4,185 feet above sea, uh, sea level. I think that would be pretty disastrous for the ecosystem. Yeah, and in terms of your reporting... Do you feel like U.S. Magnesium will get that because they are a big, important business? I mean, here we are. Everybody wants to put more water in the lake, and they basically want to dig more ditches to take more out. I don't know. I don't know if they'll get approved. Um, they, they had to put a permit in uh, or application for a permit with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and that agency is currently reviewing all of that. They um, collected public comment that wrapped earlier this month. Um when I wrote my story, the Army Corps hadn't gotten back to me, but uh, they did get back to me recently. And they had, I think they said 10 comments from the public, and they ranged from government agencies to like nonprofits and environmental groups. Is it only that approval needed, or is then there a state level approval also, since it's kind of the state's lake? Well, that's a great question, actually. Um, I talked to the state about that, and they're not taking a strong position on this yet, it seems, because what's interesting about all of that is that the state uh, division of forestry, fire, and state lands manages the lake bed on behalf of the public trust, which is all of us. Um, and so they are the ones that issue the leases for the mineral companies to be out there on the lake bed harvesting minerals. And then in return, the uh, minerals companies give a portion of, uh, give the state their royalties 
And that money is then reinvested back into the lake and to improve the lake's health. So they're kind of in this weird position where they don't want that revenue to dry up, but they're also worried about the lake drying up. So, yeah. And U.S. Magnesium, I think that's that's the biggie that we recognize, but they're not the only business evaporating and getting chemicals and whatnot off the lake. No, there's also compass minerals up north, um, kind of by Ogden, and then there's several smaller little salt industries that do, like, road salts and things. And are those businesses also at risk getting the water they are wanting? They are, uh, yes, they are all at risk. Some of those smaller companies depend on U.S. Magnesium's canals. So oh, they, interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. Even the brine shrimpers use the canals, which I didn't know, to launch their boats. So there's a lot of industries that have an interest in these canals. Um, and then the state, when I interviewed them, they did confirm that Compass has expressed interest about uh, extending its intake canals as well. Interesting. And of course, Antelope Island, famously with the, the bison going way back, um, an island and no more. Um, are any of the, are, are any of the, how do I want to say this? With all these islands that aren't islands anymore, how's that impacting the wildlife? You mentioned the island in the north, in the north area that's a home to pelicans. Right. Um, other islands no more that are being impacted for the poor birds that are trying to make a home when they come and go? Oh, for sure. I mean, part of the reason a lot of these birds are coming here is because those islands offer protection for their babies before they can, you know, fly away from predators like a coyote or a snake or something. Right. So that's that's why they're out there. That's why, you know, a pelican will migrate to this island in one of the harshest environments you can imagine. There's no shade. There's no fresh water. But they this is where they're nesting because of the protection it provides. And now that there are land bridges, all those predators, you know, can go out there and have a little pelican buffet and in your reporting (laughs) that's kind of a sad (laughs) gives me a sad image here on the radio um baby pelican buffet but you're right i mean a coyote or whatever just they can trot right over right nobody has to swim in your reporting you mentioned earlier that it's kind of hard to find anything out about the sort of secretive world of the brine shrimpers again there's only a few businesses that seem to make a lot of money out there um in your reporting are most people pretty happy to talk to you or or do do people want to get I mean certainly some people want to get the story out but as a good reporter maybe I'll ask it like this who doesn't want to get the story out are there anybody not that I've come across I mean even you know we've talked about U.S. Magnesium wanting Mm -hmm. more water and you know the one thing we shouldn't be doing right now is taking more water out of the lake you know they, they work on this lake every day they have this intimate familiarity with it you know they 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 do i do get the sense that they do care about it they want a healthy lake just like everybody else they also want to stay in business though right um and there was a piece in the paper and i don't think it was yours about you know rare minerals and you know minerals for batteries that was my story that i'm sorry okay i'm sorry i didn't (laughs) remember your name was on it that also impacts the lake right if if we're going to look for lithium now too great question so U.S. Magnesium is looking at lithium. Okay. But what's interesting about what they're doing is they're harvesting all their waste piles. So all that salt, brine, and uh, you know minerals they extracted and went through and got the magnesium and whatever else. Anything that was left over, they just kind of stockpiled. And now they're going back through that, and that's where they're getting their lithium. So they don't need more water for that. But Compass Minerals is also looking at lithium, and I don't, I don't know how they're doing that. They, they are pretty secretive about their process. So maybe they're mining their waste piles. Maybe they are using fresh or not, you know, new salt lake water for it. Well, U.S. magnesium must be much farther along because they've already got the big waste piles and probably have, I would guess, better resources. Because it seemed like in your story, the Compass folks were sort of just getting going. Mm -hmm. How how can we get lithium and be a part of the new battery revolution, so to speak? Mm -hmm. So what else is going on? Who else is trying to get fingers in the water business-wise? Anybody? I know there's there I mean, was there's the big dump off off the lake. Oh. That's not quite the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it, I would still say that that landfill would have huge impacts on the lake. Certainly, um, it would change <laughs> the, the dynamic of traffic going out there. But I, I think, like, um, let's not forget about how important the lake is for tourism. Um, you know, there uh, there are a lot of people that enjoy sailing on the lake, and they're not able to get their boats out right now because of the marina being high and dry, basically. Um, there's all the tourists that go to Antelope Island. That's a big part of Utah's history. So, oh, and all the people going to the spiral jetty. I will say the one thing, like the one happy note 
about the lake being so low is I have never seen so many people going to the spiral jetty. Like you can go out there oh. on a Friday and families are having picnics and they're flying kites. And I really think they're starting to connect with the lake in a way that they hadn't previously because there aren't a ton oh, interesting. of places where you can go to the lake, right? You know, there's usually like boggy wetlands that are kind of stinky. Um, but the, the north arm where the spiral jetty is, like, it's so salty. There's no bugs, you know? It doesn't stink. Uh, and you got this big beach and this big, beautiful land art. Oh, interesting. I, I wouldn't have thought of that. Has has all that traffic improved the road at all to get down to the jetty? Yeah, I think that probably <laughs> helped, too. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the county improved the road. I mean, I remember back when... You know, you had to print out instructions from the internet, and they were kind of vague, and there you would get lost out there, and you better bring a high-clearance vehicle. Right. But these days, the road is nice and graded, and there's signs, and you can, you know, pull up Google Maps, and it will direct you right to it. Oh, thank you, Mr. Smithson. A <laughs> couple minutes left, Leah. Um, I know you're working on some more stories, and I know you'll be back in a couple weeks to talk about those, so tease that for us as best you can. Yes. So um, some reporters with the collaborative. Uh, so that was myself, uh, a few people from the Deseret News, and a videographer with Fox 13. We went out to California to visit Owens Lake and Mono Lake, which are also two salty terminal lakes, just like the Great Salt Lake, in various stages of decline. And we went out there to see what lessons we could bring back for our own big charismatic salty lake at home. So, And that's all going to roll out across the entire collective in the next couple of weeks, correct? Second week of October. And so little. just to just to push forward, we'll have you back on Radioactive in a couple of weeks to talk about all that, because I think it's pretty exciting. Um, what struck you going to California and seeing these other, I want to say, dead lakes? <laughs> well, they're not dead. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, well, I just think the contrast. So we got Owens Lake, which... The city of Los Angeles tapped uh, more than a century ago and sucked it dry, sent mm -hmm. all this water down the L.A. aqueduct. So it is just like a big salt flat out there. And then by comparison, you got Mono Lake, um, which L.A. tried to do the same thing. And some advocates for the lake intervened and, you know, took it to court and secured the lake's right to exist. So uh, it, they have a mandated elevation that they must reach, but they haven't reached it yet, even after decades of trying. But uh, it's still kind of a success story that maybe we can learn from for the Great Salt Lake. Oh, that's I like that. Yeah. We can end on a positive note. Oh, Leah Larson, I want to thank you, and I look forward to when you can come back in a couple of weeks. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Leah Larson is a reporter at the Salt Lake Tribune. She covers the Great Salt Lake, um, as well as the garbage dump and much else around and about, um, and hope that dump never happens on the edge of the lake. But thank you for taking to come, time to come and chat with us, and I look forward to catching up with your reporting here in a couple of weeks. It's going to be great. This is Radioactive. Gosh, Thursday, tomorrow, Tamrika. Oh, so nice to have Tamrika back. She'll talk with author and podcaster Case Johnston. He's the author of the novel Let the Wild Grasses Grow. That's from Tory House Press, longtime friend of us on the station here, Tory House Press. Friday, of course, will be The Punk Rock Farmer, featuring fresh homegrown music from the Plastic Cherries and more true tales from the agri-hood as every Friday. This is Radioactive. Democracy Now! is next. I'm Nick Burns, and I want to go out on a song tonight, so let's hear the temps. No more water in the well. No more water in the well. No more. KRCL, 90.9 FM, HD1 in Salt Lake City, Ogden, and Provo. 96.7 FM in Park City, on the web at krcl.org. Listener-supported community radio. Looking to upgrade your vehicle soon? Consider donating your car to KRCL. Our vehicle donation partner will give you a tow and a tax receipt and cut KRCL a check. Find details about donating your car to KRCL at the support tab at krcl.org. No